Abel, please open up there, 1 John to the 5th chapter. First John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at one verse today, verse 12. This will then transition us into the next pericope that will close this epistle. The thesis for today's message is we proclaim Christ alone because salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. In other words, there are two and only two paths that anyone can follow in this life. The first path, one can follow Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God, and be scorned by the world for doing so, but find everlasting favor in his sight. Or path two, one can follow the world that rejects the wisdom of God, be accepted by the world, but find everlasting contempt in his sight. Those are the two paths. And that is what the Lord is going to be teaching us today out of 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. Instead of reading just this one verse, what I want to do is I want to go back to verse 5 and read it in context, and then we'll focus in on verse 12. So with your finger in 1 John chapter 5, hopefully on verse 5. Read with me. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. And here's our verse. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Let's pray. 
Father, we need your help now as we consider this one verse. There is such a depth to this one verse, Lord, that we recognize that we are just going to begin to scratch the surface of this truth. Lord, help me as I try to even show a twinkle of its marvel. May it be done by your spirit for your glory and our good. We pray these things and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we mark today, October 31st, 2021, as the four, I'm sorry, the 504th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing his 95 theses into the church door at Wittenberg, we're not only thankful for the variety of traditions that precede us this day, but for the biblical truth that stands behind them. What is commonly known as the five solas of the Reformation. When Pastor Perkins was asked to preach at the quarterly, he asked if there was a desired topic, and they said, preach on one of the solas of the Reformation, since it's October 31st. He chose sola scriptura. But the five solas of the Reformation were intended to represent an important distinction compared with the teachings claimed in the Roman Catholic Church. And if you have forgotten, here are the five solas again. The sola, which means alone. These are the five alones that we confess as Protestants. Number one, sola scriptura. That it is the scripture alone that is the only infallible rule for the church. Not a priest, not a magisterium, not a tradition. None of these things rise to the level of Scripture. Scripture is the only thing that we have that is God-breathed, and therefore it is the sole infallible rule for the church. Secondly, sola fide, which means by faith alone. Second, sola gratia, by grace alone. Fourthly, solus Christus, or Christ alone. And lastly, sola Deo Gloria, God be the glory alone. Now we can unpack each of these solas, but the point is, is that they're all intertwined and they all flow from sola scriptura. Whether it deals with our justification by faith alone, that it's done through grace alone, that there is salvation in no other name but in Christ alone, and that it's to God be the glory alone, all of these truths don't flow from just some faceless tradition that has been handed down to us. They flow from the revealed Word of God. And that is why we are led by Scripture alone. But it is a privilege of us this morning, a providential privilege of us this morning, that we're going to be considering one of these solas. Solus Christus. Solus Christus, Christ alone, is going to be the topic for today's sermon. So what a blessing that in the morning we have Solus Christus, in the evening we're going to have Sola Scriptura, and we just have to carve out time for three more sermons and we can cover all the solas. But no doubt we're going to be touching upon all the solas in both of our sermons. Here are the doctrines that we're going to be confronted with in this one verse, verse 12 of chapter 5. The doctrine of divine election, the doctrine of gospel assurance, the doctrine of reprobation, the doctrine of judgment, 
the doctrine of damnation. And these are important doctrines, and they actually show both paths that we discussed. The first path, which chooses the wisdom of God, and the second path, which rejects it. Here is the foil. Here is the fallen human condition that each and every one of us are coming to this sermon with. By our fallen nature, each and every one of us are not only willing, but eager to look for ultimate fulfillment, pleasure, purpose, and salvation in something or someone other than Jesus Christ. That is our fallen human condition. There is a battle that's going on in the hearts of the faithful, but we all battle the sinful nature which rejects God. And so undoubtedly, this will hit cl close to home for all of us. And so if you're keeping notes, this is going to be the outline of our sermon for this morning. Three parts of one verse. The first part, chosen for Christ. That's going to be 12a, chosen for Christ. The second part, part B, saved in Christ. And the third, 12c, judged by Christ. So chosen for Christ, saved in Christ, judged by Christ. And this is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If there's one thing that should be ringing in your ears after this sermon, that's it. Jesus said that he is the truth and the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father but through him. With that in mind, let us look at our first heading, Chosen for Christ. Verse 12 begins this way. He who has the Son. This is the doctrine of divine election. One linguistic observation I want to point out here is having to do with the word has. He who has the Son. Notice it doesn't say, he who had the Son. Notice it doesn't say, he who will have the Son. Although that could be true if that have is before you breathe your last breath. But the point that John is making here is, this is dealing with those that have him. He who has. This is a present tense, active word. John is unpacking in this epistle what Jesus said in his gospel. You may recall in John 6, 44, after Jesus feeds the multitudes with fish and bread and they want to make him king, he retreats and they gather to him again and he starts teaching them hard sayings to a Jewish ear. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part with me. And how they each left one by one by one. Until Jesus looked at his disciples who were left and said, are you going to leave too? 
And for those of us who know our Bibles, know what the response was. Where else will we go? You, Lord, have the words of eternal life. That includes these words that he said in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is a hard saying. To the Jewish ears, it was hard to hear, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. But to our ears, especially our Western ears, that so cherish freedom and liberty and self-autonomy, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that there is an inability. It is impossible for a fallen human to come to Christ by their own strength. Now, why would that be? Why would that be? Is it an issue of wisdom? Because a human being isn't wise enough? Is it, is it because of pleasure? Because Jesus doesn't seem to fulfill all of the pleasure that I want in my life? Is it because attractiveness? Why would I follow this carpenter from Nazareth? Especially one who just said a very hard thing that seemingly goes against all of our theology. Cannibalism. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Or for us as Americans or Westerners. You're telling me that I, there's something that I can't do? May it never be. I'm an American. I'm a man. Whatever the case may be. No, this is offensive. The reason no one can come to the Father unless they are drawn. The reason no one can come to the Son unless they are drawn by the Father is because there is a spiritual inability. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And the only thing that brings us out of that spiritual deadness is the divine work of God. God is the one who raises the dead physically, and God is the one who raises the dead spiritually. One day, God will raise everybody physically. But right now, God is raising the dead all over the world spiritually. In Santa Clarita, in Redlands, in Malta, all over the world. Jesus continues. After saying no one can come to him unless the Father draws him, he says this, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you want to be in that group? Do you want to be in the group that chooses to be raised in glory? Because here's the reality. Everybody in this room, children included, will be raised. That awaits all of us. The question is, in what nature?
will you be raised? Jesus affirms that all those who are drawn by the Father, He will raise up. And what Jesus means by that is that that's a loving relationship. Furthermore, as it consists with us today, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is how we know that we are of him, that we come to his son. And we can only come to his son if he has chosen us. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Here it is, just as he chose us in him. Well, who does God choose? Is it the one that he looks down from heaven and says, Wow, I want that one. That one's attractive to me. You know, you see that, that one right there? Always trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I can work with that one. I'm going to choose that one. No. Because verse 4 in Ephesians didn't end with, just as he chose us in him. This is the whole verse. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is divine election. Not electing sinners who look good on the outside. Rather, electing sinners who have no merit. Who have nothing to bring to God saying, is this good enough? Do I have enough zeal to be chosen by you, Lord? No, it is by God's pleasure alone. Praise be to God that he chooses anyone. But just as we prayed in our corporate prayer this morning, God uses means. It isn't just, well, throw your hands in the air because God has chosen who he's going to choose and I can't really do anything about it. And why are my parents harping on me because I can't do anything about it, how I've heard that in my own household. Papa, you can't make me believe. Yeah. How I wish that were different. But God uses means. And he uses prayer. And he uses the preached word, as we're hearing now. And he uses fellowship. This is why, as it concerns our children especially, it says that our children are holy. Not holy in the sense of Presbyterianism where we baptize our babies because they're in the New Covenant. But they're holy because they're legitimate children. They lawfully belong to us. And they are privileged to be in a household where they are brought to church. Where they engage in family worship. Where they see their mother and father praying. Where they have their mother and father and grandparents and family and friends praying for them. I remember my own salvation. The moment that God took the spiritual blinders off of me. He waited 30 years to save me. And when he did, I couldn't, I couldn't, I can't even describe it now. 
And I went and I wanted to tell everybody, I'm born again. Jesus saved me. And I met people who said, I was praying for you. And I, that, that wasn't on my radar at all. Prayer wasn't on my radar at all, let alone people praying for my salvation. God uses means. And our prayers don't change God's decree. But they fill it. Because God has even decreed our prayers. What a privilege that God would include us in this divine action. That he would use our feeble, what seemingly often feel like weak works to save lost sinners. And that brings us to the next point. Heading number two. Not only are we chosen for Christ, but we're saved in Christ. John says, he who has the Son has the life. This is the doctrine of gospel assurance. Simply put, do you have the Son? If you have the Son, you have life. It's that simple, brothers and sisters. It's that simple, children who gather with us. If you have the Son, you have life. It's not if you have the Son and do these things, you have life. If you have the Son and believe certain doctrines, you have life. If you have the Son and have a burning in your bosom, you have life. All these things could very well be present and are good things. But it's if you have the Son, you have life. This brings us back to the Reformation. Solus Christus in Christ alone, by faith alone. And here is a linguistic observation again that I think can help us here. What does John mean when he says, He who has the Son has the life? Why not just say, has life? And what is this life, anyways? Well, the in this construction, I believe, is most likely, and this is fancy falutin Greek language, is something called an anatheric, which is pointing to, in simple terms, a context that precedes this verse. So when John says, he who has the Son has the life, he's expecting that you already know what the life is. Well, where in the context do we read about what this life is? It should not surprise you. It's the verse that came right before this. Verse 11. Read it with me. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So what is John saying when he says, he who has the Son has the life? He's saying this, he who has the Son has eternal life. In fact, the Apostle John will reference this eternal life four times in this chapter alone. Besides this verse and verse, uh, verse 12 and the previous verse and verse 11, he speaks of eternal life in verses 13 and 20. 13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then verse 20, 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Interesting. John is linking eternal life, which we may think of as a concept, with a person. Jesus Christ is eternal life. And that should not surprise us, for Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We've talked about in previous sermons, those words would be blasphemous to anyone who was not God in the flesh. Father, imagine the blasphemy. I'm praying as a man. Father, give them eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, Father, the one true God, and me. That is blasphemy. Unless... Jesus is God. And in the previous context of even John chapter 5, we've noticed that the Apostle John is pointing out the humanity and the divinity of the Son. This all fits together, and it all points to this. We are saved in Christ alone. So not only are we chosen for Christ alone, but we are saved in Christ alone. I want to make a quick detour here, and if you're able, turn to John's Gospel in John chapter 3. And I want to show you this in John's Gospel. And I believe it will continue to fill out this idea of eternal life being a reality and also a person. John chapter 3. I spoke about my regeneration and my conversion, and it might come as little surprise to many here that it was John chapter 3 that the Lord used to open my eyes. This is the beloved chapter about the new birth. And we have two sections here. We have sections 1 through 21 where Nicodemus is talking to Jesus. And then it transitions in verse 22 to a testimony of John the Baptist. And we know this well, as those of us who've read this scripture before. But Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And here's something that's interesting. As I was studying on this verse, I always had the picture in my mind that when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he's alone. But as we know in the Gospels, Jesus was rarely alone unless he was going off to pray. He was with his disciples teaching them, not only by his words, but by his life. He was discipling them by his actions as much as his words. And when Nicodemus came and knocked on that door, or came to Jesus at night, it is very possible that his disciples were in earshot of this conversation. 
And Nicodemus asked a very important question. In fact, I would say it's the second most important question. As we've been going through John's epistle, we said, what is the most important question that we're all going to have to answer? Who is Jesus Christ? Well, this is a close second. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Because Jesus said, you must be born again. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus, with his mind fixed on earthly things, makes a very, I think, accurate statement. No, a man cannot enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born again. But Jesus wasn't speaking of literal, physical things. He was speaking of spiritual things. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. If you've been tracking with us in 1 John, with the testimony that God has given, the water and the blood and the Spirit, there's a connection here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And then Jesus says this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Yes, we prayed in our prayer this morning that one man sows, another man waters, but the growth comes from God. Jesus is saying the same. We can pray for the salvation of those that we love, but God is pleased to save whom he chooses. The Spirit goes where it wishes. Everyone who is born again is born by the Spirit of God. But then as we transition down to verse 22, we have a testimony, a testimony of John the Baptist. And John is in the business in this section of taking the attention off of him and putting it on Jesus. Putting it on Jesus. Because there was a controversy that arose, even amongst John's disciples. And they were saying, John, people are going after Jesus. Now, you think that might ruffle the feathers of someone who's prideful? I want to keep those students under me. But the answer is a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. What's John the Baptist saying? It's fitting that they're going after Christ because I am not the Christ. I am a friend of Christ. And what did we sing this morning? Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Are you a friend of Christ? Do you rejoice greatly because you hear his voice this morning? John the Baptist rejoiced greatly when he heard Jesus' voice in the Gospels. Guess where else John the Baptist rejoiced when he heard the voice of Christ? Even his presence 
in his own mother's womb. So again, do our prayers have any power? If John the Baptist could be filled with the Holy Spirit and leap for joy in the womb of his mother, just being in the presence of Jesus, do our prayers avail for our children, even if they're still in the womb? Absolutely. The Spirit brings to life whom He chooses. So this great salvation belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. But Christ is not only the most wonderful Savior, He is also the most terrifying judge. And this is the hardest part of the sermon. Heading number three, judged by Christ. So in our sermon here on Solus Christus, Christ alone, we've considered even in part chosen for Christ, saved in Christ, and lastly, judged by Christ. Read with me the last part of verse 12. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And what is the life again? It is eternal life. It is eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. Here the doctrines of eternal reprobation and damnation are in view. The same doctrine, in fact, almost said in very similar words, is found in John's Gospel in the context of the new birth. John chapter 3, where we just were. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John chapter 3, verse 36. This distinction of solus Christus not only speaks of the innumerable riches of Christ and salvation, but also carries with it the terrifying reality of judgment. I believe that a rejection of Christ alone can be illustrated in the sad progression of all those who are spiritually lost, culminating in unthinkable horror. This warning can go forth this morning in three truths that we ought not ignore. Number one, all those who reject Christ and his testimony will go from bad to worse, even in this life. How so? Well, first, you will be abandoned in your sin and lost to virtue or grace. Listen to what Titus 1.6 says, 1.16. These are speaking of those who actually profess to be Christians, but are not. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But not only will you be abandoned in sin, lost to virtue and grace, but you will also be abandoned to error and if a professing Christian in apostasy. Listen to 2 Timothy 3, 1-9. One but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Full stop. 
John said in his epistle on previous messages that we're in the last days, remember? By this we know that we are in the last days because many antichrists have come. Paul is saying something very similar about these last days that began with the coming, crucifixion, raising in glory, and ascension of our Lord. Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossipers, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness... Although they have denied its power. And he goes on to say they are of depraved minds. They have been rejected in regards to the faith. Yes, all who reject Christ and reject his testimony will go from bad to worse. 2 Timothy 3.13 But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That is the first warning concerning the judgment that is coming as it pertains to those who do not have the Son of God. Second truth, those who reject Christ and his testimony will be judged by Christ. Matthew 25:32 All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. When does that happen? After the resurrection. When all the nations are gathered before Christ. Remember, everyone in this room will be raised. What happens after you're raised? There will be a separation from the sheep and the goats. Acts 10, 2. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one, Jesus, who is appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. 1 Corinthians 5:10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now this verse is only showing that even the faithful will stand before Christ's judgment seat. But nonetheless, it is Christ's judgment seat. Judged by Christ alone. Romans 14.10 Why then do you judge your brother? Or why do you belittle your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. <clears throat> Romans 2.16 On that day, the second coming of Christ, on that day when God will judge men's secrets through Christ Jesus as proclaimed by my gospel. Remember Numbers 5? We talked about the lesson being even sins that we think are hidden are revealed and all will come to light. This is the New Testament lens by which we look at even those sins then that the secrets of men will be judged through Christ Jesus. And if that isn't terrifying enough, the Lord has given us symbolic language to stoke our fear so that we may run to him for salvation. 
and it has to do with the breaking of the sixth seal in the book of Revelation. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. That's terrifying enough. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. Who is it? It's Christ. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Brothers and sisters, who is able to stand? Those who are in Christ. John said, if you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. Lastly, truth three. All those who reject Christ and his testimony will not just go from bad to worse, will not just be judged by Christ, but will go into eternal damnation. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. If your foot is causing you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life without a foot than having your two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye is causing you to sin, throw it away. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not extinguished. Two things to notice. Number one, Jesus isn't talking literally here. Please don't cut your hands off. Pluck out your eyes. He's speaking spiritually here. Do whatever is necessary to prevent the stumbling into sin that you are accustomed to. If Jesus is saying, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, how much more should you do something simpler? like cutting out a sinful habit or pleasure. And from the lesser to the greater, not only is Jesus not speaking literal about what you ought to do, he is speaking literal about the consequence of hell, that it's eternal. The fire is not extinguished there. There will be no mercy. There will be no peace. If I could do this sermon again, I might start with the latter half of verse 12 and do the first half so I could comfort you in Christ. I trust that you have been comforted in Christ, that you have heard that he is the only way, and that if you have the Son, you have life, and that if you do not have the Son, you do not have life. Remember, there's only two roads. One can follow Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God,
be scorned by the world, but find everlasting favor in his sight. Or one can follow the world that rejects the wisdom of God, be accepted by the world, but find everlasting contempt in his sight. I want to conclude just by way of one illustration. We live in Santa Clarita. Oftentimes I'm stuck behind those transit authority buses. And I'm always mesmerized by the saying on the back of the bus. Those of us who live here may recall what it says. As I'm looking at the blue and the green design, I see this quote. Santa Clarita, where the good life takes you. Well, what is the good life? And where does it take you? The good life truly is being in Christ. And where does it take you? To the Father. So the question that we all ask ourselves at the end of this sermon is where is your life leading? If you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son of God, you do not have the life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message centered on Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified that we preach, that we believe, that we find our hope. It is him alone, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for our unfaithfulness. Forgive us for all the times that we think that we need something more. Thank you for forgiving our sin in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the promise that you've made us that we are not left here wondering what it takes, what it takes to enter your kingdom. The clear answer we have received this morning is this. Christ is enough. Let us all rest in that truth for those of us who believe. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>